All right, you may be seated. Uh, I just want to say, I was on vacation the past couple of weeks, uh, and it is so nice to come back here to worship with all of you today. Uh, I don't know if this is where other people's minds work, but I'm kind of out of sight, out of mind a little bit. And so seeing you guys again, it's just great to be here with all of you today. For the past three summers here at Byfield Parish, we have done a sermon series called Cognitive Behavioral Theology. For those of you that are new, cognitive, uh, cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT, is a form of psychiatric treatment. According to the American Psychological Association, CBT has three core principles. First, Psychological problems are based in part on faulty or unhelpful ways of thinking. Second, psychological problems are based in part on learned patterns of unhelpful behavior. And third, people suffering from psychological problems can learn better ways of coping with them thereby relieving their symptoms and becoming more effective in their lives. The big idea behind cognitive behavioral theology that we are returning to today is that our theology, our faith, what we believe about God and the Bible should influence the way we think and behave. It should impact the way we cope with our world. In the previous three summers of the Cognitive Behavioral Theology Sermon Series, we have focused on the theology of God, man, and last summer on Jesus. Each of these is incredibly important. We started with God, who is the basis for every truth. Man was prioritized next, both because we need to know what humanity is, what we are in relation to God, but also because to understand Jesus, you must know what man was intended by God to become. This summer, our priority is going to be the third member of the Trinity, the one we haven't studied yet the Holy Spirit. For many, the Holy Spirit is a theological challenge. We know the Holy Spirit is supposed to make a significant impact on the way we think and behave, but if you're anything like me, you often feel like that's, that's not what's happening. That you aren't exhibiting the sort of thinking and behavior that should come from a life in which the Holy Spirit is active. Our knowledge of the Holy Spirit is limited both intellectually and experientially. So in a small way this summer, I hope we can make progress in our knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn now to the first time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Scripture. We'll be reading the first two verses of the Bible. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. This is a very short text. 
Our study of the Holy Spirit will begin in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. One of the challenges of the early chapters of Genesis that I've mentioned in sermons before is how incredibly rich they are. Whole books of information are squeezed into a single sentence, sometimes into just a couple of words. And that is certainly true when it comes to today's text. These verses tell us an immense amount about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. If we want to know about the Holy Spirit, the beginning is the best place to begin. The Spirit of God referenced in these verses, otherwise known as the Holy Spirit, is by far the most mysterious member of the Trinity. God and Jesus are easier for us to imagine. When most people think of God, they think of the all-powerful, all-knowing ruler of the universe. They might imagine him in different ways. Some people might picture a physical manifestation of God with lightning-filled eyes and a white flowing beard. Others may imagine something more nebulous, a cloud of crackling energy. What God looks like is not really the point, though. What matters more is what God does. People more or less think they know what God does. He rules and judges. For Christians, Jesus is even more familiar. Physically, Jesus is really easy for most people to imagine. He's got a beard and long, curly hair. He wears a robe and sandals. You might even picture Jesus as having blue eyes, although there is basically no chance that a Jewish guy born in first century Palestine would have had blue eyes. That was a later invention. People can also imagine what Jesus does easily. He teaches, he gets crucified, he's resurrected. The point I'm making is not that what is commonly believed about God or Jesus is correct. When people picture Jesus, they picture who he was in the gospels, not who he is now. The book of Revelation paints a picture of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. The present Jesus would be shocking to many. Our knowledge of God is often skewed as well. What we think about God or Jesus may be flawed, but at least we have some sort of starting point to work off of. 
Many years ago, when I was in Budapest, Hungary, I saw a statue that represented the three members of the Trinity in conversation with one another. Jesus looked like Jesus normally looks in statues. God was a shining star, and the Holy Spirit was a dove. The dove for the Holy Spirit was taken from the story of Jesus' baptism. But that's not really super helpful to us in the present. Imagining the Holy Spirit as a dove in the present doesn't offer much clarity about who he is or what he is up to. If you ask most people, even if you ask most Christians to describe the Holy Spirit, nobody's going to say, oh, he's, he's like a dove. You are going to get a lot of blank stares and mumbled ums. For a long time, people's ignorance of the Holy Spirit went along with ignoring the Holy Spirit. Interest in the Holy Spirit would periodically rise and a preacher or a movement would focus on the Holy Spirit. During the First Great Awakening, which was a revival movement, in the 1730s and 1740s, the Holy Spirit was highly valued here in New England. Interest in the Spirit led to a split in New England congregationalism between what was known as the Old Lights and the New Lights. The new lights who embraced what they believed to be the work of the Spirit accused the old lights of dead orthodoxy. The old lights accused the new lights of having lost their minds or even having embraced the demonic. The debate between the old and new lights has recurred most times the action of the Holy Spirit has been claimed throughout history. Both sides have, good, have had good evidence at different times. Those that are pro-Holy Spirit point to change lives and people coming to faith. Those that are anti-Holy Spirit, or at least anti-whatever movement is unfolding before them, point to the emotionalism and divisiveness they have witnessed firsthand among those who claim to be following the Holy Spirit's lead. For the past century, interest in the Holy Spirit has been on a more consistent upward trajectory. One of the biggest days, one of the biggest events in Christian history in the 20th century happened on April 9th, 1906. A one-eyed African-American preacher named William J. Seymour who was a former slave, was meeting with seven men for prayer in Los Angeles. William J. Seymour, you may have not heard that name, but much of the history of Christianity in the 20th century, he's one of the most important people. During this time of prayer, Seymour and those with him believed the Holy Spirit showed up in their midst, causing the men to speak in tongues. This attracted the attention of many in L.A. The prayer meeting turned into a nightly revival meeting, which moved to a building on Azusa Street. 
For three years, services took place nightly, with many claiming to be healed spiritually and physically. The Azusa Street Revival was the starting point for the modern Pentecostal movement. Over the ensuing 100 years, there have been a lot of debates about Pentecostalism. There are those who celebrate it as an unalloyed good. There are those who see it as a huge negative. Many Christians aren't sure what to think. Imagine that if you took a survey here at Byfield, if I surveyed those of you in this room today, there would be a diversity of opinion on Pentecostalism. Now, later this summer, we will wade a little more into the debate about Pentecostalism when we look at what 1 Corinthians has to say about the gifts of the Spirit, such as prophecy, healing, and speaking in tongues. But for now, we're going to set that aside. Before we try to settle any debate about the Holy Spirit, we are going to focus on establishing what Scripture makes abundantly clear to us. There's plenty about the Holy Spirit that every Christian must agree on. The Holy Spirit is mysterious, yes, but God has seen fit through his word to unravel a good amount of that mystery. The verses we read today, the first verses in the Bible, make an absolute truth unavoidable. The Holy Spirit is a necessary member of the Trinity. There are Christians that feel very uncomfortable anytime the Holy Spirit comes up. That might be true of you. This is often a response to the way those who have been most interested in the Holy Spirit have behaved over the past hundred years. I'm sure that if you go on YouTube, you can find videos of church services that are just totally out of control. People yelling and crying, dancing in bizarre fashion. There are televangelists that claim to be guided by the Holy Spirit that promise healing as they ask for money to support their ministry. Few would, be, few would deny that the Holy Spirit has been associated with erratic behavior in recent years. Down in my neck of the woods, where I'm from, there are people that, that dance with snakes, with poisonous snakes, because they feel led to by the Holy Spirit. For Christians that prioritize stability and order, the Holy Spirit can feel like a threat. It's easier just to ignore the Spirit. Some have gone so far as to claim that the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the Bible. Basically, if you have the Bible, you don't, you don't need the Holy Spirit. While I understand the discomfort that leads to this conclusion, it must be refuted. The Holy Spirit is not optional. Scripture is clear on this. Nobody can become a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit. We cannot reason our way to the gospel. Holiness is not possible without the Spirit. Truth about God is out of our reach. We can't even pray without the assistance of the Spirit. 
Any form of Christianity that lacks the Holy Spirit is at best a lifeless orthodoxy. It cannot bring life, only death. It may look like Christianity in many ways, but it is not the real thing. The Holy Spirit isn't just necessary for us. It is necessary for God. This sounds like a very suspicious thing to say. Necessary for God? Nothing is necessary for God. When Paul was preaching in Athens in Acts 17, he said God doesn't need anything. It is true that God needs nothing from any human. He created us for his pleasure. God would be just fine without us. God is self-sustaining. Nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is necessary to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Next week, we're going to focus more on the Trinity. For now, it is enough to say the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is not in relation to God. The Holy Spirit is not an expression of God a mode of God, or a part of God. The Holy Spirit is God just as much as God the Father and Jesus are God. The Holy Spirit is not optional to God because God is not optional to himself. God can't not exist. Neither can the Holy Spirit not exist. All life is dependent on the Holy Spirit's presence. It has been this way from the beginning. The first verse of Genesis, which we read today, reports that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We are not supposed to imagine the current world we live in. What God created in Genesis 1-1 was not ready to sustain life. It was a watery waste. The mental image verse 1 draws up for me is being in the middle of an ocean. In the midst of a hurricane, the wind is whipping off the white caps that tower over and collapse down upon themselves in a black and bottomless sea. The Hebrew words used to describe the world God had created in the first part of verse 2 are tohu and bohu. Tohu means formlessness. Confusion, unreality, and emptiness. Bohu means emptiness. The ESV also translates these two descriptive words as without form and void, which is a good translation. Over this formless void, the Holy Spirit hovers. Ancient readers would have easily recognized much of what verse 1 and 2 were communicating. The Spirit of God transcended a creation that was not anything but chaos. The Holy Spirit operates as an organizing principle by being God's presence in the world through the Spirit, life as we know it comes to be. He is the personal force, the breath of God operating in the world. The Holy Spirit perpetuates life to this day. Without his active presence, the world would devolve back into tohu and bohu. There would be nothingness. 
You can think of creation like a device with no battery. When you unplug such a device, it dies. Separated from the Holy Spirit, creation would cease. It would not wind down. It would stop. This is true spiritually just as much as it is true physically. Our spiritual existence is connected to the Holy Spirit. Apart from Him is spiritual death. This is why the Bible describes spiritual death as darkness, formlessness, confusion, and unreality. The Holy Spirit is the basis for spiritual life. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot be ignored. The Holy Spirit should not be ignored. There is no denying that over the past century, there's been a lot of debate about the Holy Spirit within Christianity. Things have been associated with the Spirit that are clearly not of God. This is unfortunate. In rejecting those actions, we should not reject the Spirit. The Spirit is God. Like Jesus and the Father, we shouldn't respond to erroneous beliefs by turning away. We should seek the truth. The Holy Spirit is the means by which life exists. It is through connecting with the Spirit that we can reach the fullest potential of life that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has made possible for us. If you hunger for life, you are hungering for the Holy Spirit even if you don't realize it. We were made for life. We were made through the Spirit, for the Spirit. Throughout the remainder of the summer, we are going to focus on the Holy Spirit so that our thinking and behavior can better align with His purposes for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are pretty good about talking about Jesus, about thanking you for Jesus. And that, that is a good thing, Lord. We are less adept at thanking you for the Holy Spirit, at, at talking about the Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I pray that you would be with us, that you would have your Spirit work in our lives to draw us to your truth. We thank you and we praise you for the provision you have made for us of your Son and of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We will make